ornaments of interreligious material culture, embodying devotion, resistance, and creativity in online community. Ritual Sacrifice, Black Men and the Creation of White Identity. These are just some of the workshops coming up this weekend. That's right, y'all. It's this weekend. It's finally here. The Theopoetics Conference. Now, I know I've been talking about this for a while, but the time is finally here. The conference is still open. Get on down. Sign up. Profane Faith. Go on down to artsandreligionculture.org. Check out Theopoetics. Register and get on down Y'all, it's going to be an amazing time. And your boy's going to be presenting. I've got a little workshop looking at short-term missions and whiteness and all that good stuff. It's coming. It's coming this weekend. Get on down. We'll see you there. Things are going to get worse before they get better. Got down on his knees and gave his life to Christ. Because Americans are dreamers too. You're not in any moral position to tell anybody how corrupt they are. You should be quiet. Why? Why are our black sons and daughters being treated so badly? This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, your boy, Daniel White Hodge. Welcome back. Welcome back. How y'all doing? How y'all doing? Man, here's another week. Here is another week. Uh, sorry for uploading a little later this week. Um, you know, just life happening and all that good stuff. I didn't get a chance uh, yesterday, which I usually upload on uh, Saturday. And, um, you know, just to make sure everything is working and then have everything ready by Sunday. But uh, I was man, I was trying to fix a leaky faucet yesterday and trying to do some stuff around the house. And then by the time I looked up, it was like 11 something. And y'all brother was just tired. So (laughs) excuse the brother for being tired. But nonetheless, here we are. We're up and running this week. And uh, man, we have a live one for you this week. Wow. I got my. Good friend Sarah Quesada on here uh, talking about her book, Love Undocumented, Risking Trust in a Fearful World, uh, put out by Harold Press. Um, She sent me an early copy of this book um, and I read it and endorsed it. I was like, wow, this is a really uh, good book in terms of dealing with aspects of, you know, DACA, uh, uh, undocumented citizens that live here. Of course, the, the quote unquote illegal alien immigrant debate that continues to rage in this country even more so under the trumpster uh in this in this era and so i wanted to get into these aspects here on the show because as many of you know i am afro latino and uh, i grew up on the mexican side of my family and this is something that's been an ongoing you know conversation i mean i have family members that came over in the bracero program in the 20s i have family members who were involved in the you know, in the 1960s with Cesar Chavez. And, you know, I have family members who have been looked at as quote unquote wetbacks and people who don't deserve to be in this country, you know. And so oftentimes, you know, this debate, this uh, conversation, however you want to place it and, and, and situate it in, gets looked at as only a Mexican thing, only a brown person thing. And it's just so much bigger than that, um, mainly because, you know, it's per- people of color, right? And you have people on all sides of the fence and everything uh, in the middle. 
you know, from people who say, no, we got to get rid of the DACA program, but, you know, let's keep the families together. To people who say, no, we got to have amnesty, all the way to people saying, nah, man, you know, we can't have any of that. And we just need to just close our borders altogether. Um, you know, it's it's not an open and shut case. I mean, I think for me, I look at it much more historical. Um, I look and engage with these conversations for what what has the country done in the past? How has the country, you know, uh, particularly white America, you know, because those are the folks who've been in charge. How has white America really treated uh, their 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 ethnic minorities who've come to this country, either quote unquote illegally or legally? And then more importantly, who has been deemed legal and illegal, right? I mean, because those are just terms that we lay on each other. I mean, borders are human made. Uh, we've set them all up. Those weren't on the geography of, of the land. I think it's interesting how just we as humans organize ourselves around borders, then go to wars to protect those borders. Um, and, I, you know, it's just interesting. I mean, I'm just I'm I'm entering a new just kind of not a new phase, but just in, 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 in a sense of, you know, how do we look at this thing from both a macro and a micro, right? Um, we care about the economy so much. We, we love the economy so much in the sense that we treat it like a, you know, a, a rational human being. Right. Uh, we protect it like it was something to be protected. And we look at things in such a way, especially the rhetoric that we're told to us. Right. That if these folks are led into the country, they're going to take your job. The, the economy is going to fall. They are they're going to be, you know, it's, it's going to be mad bedlam and madlam and, you know, all 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 around. Right. Cats and dogs living together. The end of the world. Well, the reality of it is, is that, you know, this is this term of who's illegal and who's legal has been has been something that the U.S. just historically has never necessarily done well to begin with. Uh, when you think about who was brought over to this country to help build it, uh, who it was taken and taken away from uh, the fact of the that the blood of the land still speaks out. That still still remains a factor in this in this country that we have yet to deal with any of the atrocities that the you know the puritans and the new englanders and the and the euro you know the euro folks the european settlers who came you know any of those things that we have yet to deal with those in a just manner and i find that problematic on many levels i really do when you think about who's illegal and who's legal i mean technically the native americans the folks who've been here those are the legal folks they were the ones on the land and sustained this land for thousands of years prior to into the Europeans getting here, you know? Um, and I know, again, I know there's probably some of you listening to this thinking, man, dude, you just, man, what's up with that? I mean, of course, you know, I don't want my economy crashing, but it's been crashed. I mean, I think, I remember one time when I was in like second or third grade, uh, you know, we were doing a project on, um, and I've talked a little bit about this here on the podcast, you know, but we were doing a project on, you know, the Great Depression. And, um, you know, I thought, oh, great. I have my grandmother, you know, great grandma Didi. She was, you know, she lived through the Great Depression. And so, you know, I'm seeing all these pictures of people getting, you know, uh, hurt and destroyed and people committing suicide. And, you know, you have these pictures of the Great Depression and, you know, people woe to them and they're, you know, standing in these long lines. And so I was like, okay, great. I'm going to get firsthand, you know, I didn't even know the word yet, but, you know, here's primary uh, materials, right? I'm, I'm interviewing somebody who lived through the Great Depression. And so I go to ask her, I say, you know, Didi, you know, how was it, what was it like, you know, to, to live through that era? And she, you know, she looked at me and she, you know, she sat back a little bit and she was just like, you know, mijo, the reality of it was is that, you know, that was the way we as Mexicanos, we just, we lived all the time. So the fact that it affected somebody and made news, we actually found it funny. 
And that was one of the first times I started, yeah, that, I mean, that hit me, that stuck with me to this day, right? I mean, she, she's sitting there like making this conscious, really this conscious connection with oppression and privilege, right? Like whose story is valuable? Whose story do we listen to? Whose pain is, right? Whose pain is the best? And she was just like, you know, we live like that. She said, I live. She said, Los Mexicanos, we stand in the student line all the time trying to get jobs. You know, and she talked about the Bracero program. She talked about folks who came over here and helped, you know, during the Civil War. People who, uh, people, Mexicans who came over and, and, and worked, you know, for during World War II, you know, and then later got turned away because, you know, they, they're, you know, white folks was done with them, right? And so I'm like, dude, I mean, that stood out to me. In my entire life, that stood out to me because I'm just like, huh, it's like, people of color are the canary in the mine right it's like the bad stuff tends to start happening to them first but it really don't matter we just let the canary in the mine die and then the minute it happens to white america then it's a problem right oh man crack wasn't a problem it was on wall street school shootings wasn't a problem right oh columbine oh my gosh i can't believe this this is happening you know and so man when you think about that for me, I mean, that's just, it's problematic on so many levels. It's so racialized. And so this aspect, we come back to this, this notion of illegal immigration. Who are really illegal? You know, <laughs> who's who really is the illegal person? Was, you know, not no justice has ever really been done. And I think, honestly, if you want to get theological on this, this is part of the sin of this country that is embedded in the very DNA, the very systems that we operate with today. And I struggle with that because I know I'm complicit in many regards for, with that as well, right? Because, you know, I'm benefiting from some of those privileges or some of those systems today, you know, some of those privileges and whatnot. Um, so I don't think I can just, you know, completely wash my hands of that, you know. But, I mean, think about that. Somebody comes in, steals your land, gets your people sick, kills them, rapes people, kills people, mutilates them. And then, then we have put statues of them up all over the place and honor them. We then we have these President's Days and we have, you know, we honor them. I mean, so... That to me is ironic. You know, when you read the, the story of the Alamo from the Mexicans' perspective, it's a different story. Much like when you read World War II from the Japanese perspective, it's much different. Now, I'm not excusing some of these atrocities. I'm not saying that, oh, the Mexicans, you know, you know, uh, uh, General Santana was, was just the best and humanitarian. He was just defending. No, no, no. He had his issues too. And so did Japan. But my point is, is that again, the winners of wars write the history books. And in and, and the same way, when right on down to the, to the commentaries, the winners write the commentaries and they created God in their own image. And that God, from what we see, right? Oh, it's a rule bearing God. We have to have this God that keeps rules and, 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 and you know, we don't want to break the rules of the land. <laughs> That's the biggest load of crock and crap that I've ever heard, man. Because that God seems to just be, you know, transitional and and and, and um, really relative because it's like, well, whose rules does God get to enforce, right? And which rules does this God want to keep? So I got problems with that. I mean, this so this for me, this immigration conversation is much bigger, much bigger. And of course, having a racist in the White House, you know, a known uh, polygamist, a known uh, um, 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 anti-Semite, even though he tries to act, you know, act it off, right? That we have this person in the White House, right? Sitting there now, today, this is our president. Having that person in there, you know, and now still having this, this this conversation because it wasn't like, you know, the conversation of, you know, illegal deportation was that much better under Obama. You know what I'm saying? But now that we have somebody who's definitely out there with it, he ain't even shy to say it. Right now, having this conversation makes it so much more detrimental and, and so much more urgent 
to be engaged with this. So <laughs> all that to say, I wanted to bring my friend Sarah on um, this book. Like I said, I read it and I thought, wow, this is this is this is good. It's in a narrative form. Uh, she's married um, to a uh, an ethnic minority, um, a Latinx brother, and uh, they have kids. And so this is a, this is an issue that's not just out there. It's in her home every single day. And he's undocumented. So um, this is the book we're talking about today here. Love, Undocumented, Risking Trust in the Field for World. Um, I'll put all the links to that, you know, to her book and to her website, of course, in the show notes. But I think this is a very, very important conversation um, in particular, particularly since we look so heavily on jobs. And the reality of it is, is that, you know, we have to because it's not like I'm doing this. I mean, for example, this podcast, this podcast just ain't paid for, you know, by the goodness of people of, of just I just walked into a store and got everything free. No, somebody had to pay for this, y'all. So I get that we have to look at money in a sensible way. I don't just go and speak for free places. You know what I'm saying? There's got to be something. I'm just putting it out there, right? It's not like when I went and, you know, when I was getting my PhD and those classes were almost $5,000 a class, a class. You heard that right. I couldn't just walk up to the register and be like, hey, $5,000. Man, um, how about I just give y'all um, a little love offering and y'all take that and, you know, we, we cool, right? I mean, I, mean, I get you like $200, right? be like hell nah fool <laughs> so i get money is important jobs are important but again let's not get gassed let's not get taken by what we see right in front of us that looks so obvious that really isn't and that's part of the conversation that i wanted to have with sarah and that i think we had so chime off you know hit me up i know this is a this is a heated debate and right now i'm on the bully pulpit um uh, so hit a brother back um but also you know do your history do you do your work you know look at some of these things you know as it pertains to uh immigration and who's been labeled as illegal um and not as legal um it's a very fascinating story so without any further ado uh, i'm going to bring on sarah here um a couple of things just before we go again this week is the um theopoetics conference coming up check out the links uh, on whitehodgepodcast.com if you haven't liked us already on facebook uh, i'm under white hodge podcast so it's kind of the the umbrella group right white hodge podcast it's where profane faith is at and then of course you can look up profane faith online at whitehodgepodcast.com uh and if you just want to know more about a brother me whitehodge.com you know you 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 know Check, go check a brother out um, I'm there on the net And um, you know Soon too I'll be having a new book Coming out this summer I'm going to be talking about that So that'll be That's on the horizon So be on the lookout for that Also speaking of removing statues And white supremacists In our in our midst And particularly in our public sphere I have brother doctors Doctors Andre Johnson And Earl Fisher Coming on here real soon To talk about the work They've been doing um, Out in Memphis uh, Removing uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest So that's coming up y'all We got some good stuff coming Stay tuned. Thanks so much for supporting the show. Here's Sarah and I's conversation. You know, the the book for me and really kind of my faith journey has always been rooted in relationships. And so um, after my freshman year of college, I took a year off of school to um, serve in Atlanta with a program called Mission Year, which is like a year-long volunteer uh, yeah. program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, – yeah, so I lived in a house with folks and we, you know, lived among the poor. We took public transportation. We volunteered full time. And it was hugely transformational for me mm -hmm. um, as well as my faith because I had grown up. I grew up in East Tennessee and in the South in evangelical. Um, my dad was a pastor, all those kinds of things. So that was really the background that 
formed me through my childhood and young adult years. Um, but moving to the city and having neighbors that were from different walks of life and had different experiences really changed um, changed the way I saw the world and also had an impact on how I connected with God and the things that I understood about my faith and what that looks like lived out in the world. Um, so after that, I went back to school, got a master's in sociology, um, which is then when I took the job where I met you, um, moving to Los Angeles, where I was helping lead students in the same kind of transformational experiences. Mm-hmm. We were going to the border. We yeah. were, um, you know, spending time on Skid Row, talking to folks, all this kind of stuff, very interactive. And um, that for me was just huge. I mean, I definitely felt like all those different ways to connect with people and relationships is what kind of helped move me in my faith closer to God, I would say. Uh-huh. And um, I mean, it, it's talking about LA. I mean, the book actually starts from um, when I first moved to Los Angeles and I was totally overwhelmed. <laughs> I was coming from <laughs> the South and I had never been in a place with so many different people from all over the world. Um, and I was kind of like, what have I gotten myself into? Um, And I feel like, you know, there's lots of different places in our lives where we have those experiences of like, where am I and how did I get here? And we have that choice of, are we going to lean back and kind of respond in fear? Or are we going to lean in and connect? And I think for me, that has always been a very rooted part of my faith and the way that I hope to live in my life is kind of connecting and um, being able to see different perspectives along the way. And LA was a big part of that for me, for sure. And hmm. that's where the book starts. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so, I mean, and, and along those lines, I mean, you, so you saying, you know, grew up in the South, I mean, you know, stereotypically, you know, there's all the stuff that, I mean, I grew up in the South, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I was in Texas and, um, I, you know, I had a hell of a time. And so I'm just curious, like what, you know, what were some of the influence? I mean, what, what, um, you know, how was race looked at? How were issues of immigration, you know, looked at, um, you know, you're growing up. And I mean, I know in one part of the book, I'm going to, I'm going to quote you here in a minute. You know, you talked about being a rule keeper and, and, and all that. And so I'm curious, like just, you know, some of that formation, like, you know, what, what was that like you being a white woman coming from the South? And like you said, coming to LA, which is for anybody, I mean, having, having been from there, even myself, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, New York and LA, it's just like, it's a, it's their, their culture shifts, you know, big time and stuff. So, yeah. um, I don't know. Does that make that, does that question make sense in, in terms of, you know? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, looking back now, I see how much of it just wasn't discussed. Like it was, it was more absorbed. Um, and so when I, when I originally moved to Atlanta to do this volunteer program, I was most excited about the cross-cultural living piece of it. I was excited to live in a neighborhood where I was the minority and to kind of have some of those different, different experiences. I was stunned to move to the city and discover um, how many people were poor. Um, that, that connection had never been explicitly made for me um, of of what was going on in the cities and some of these communities. And so for me, it was, it, you know, it made me just ask a lot of questions. I think that's why I went back and studied sociology after I was done with that. Cause I was like, I have a lot of questions about what's going on in the world and yeah. socioeconomic connections. Um, because so much of it, I think, um, you know, 
I don't know if I ever heard anybody use the word colorblind, but it was like, that was kind of the idea of like, we just don't talk about race. We don't, you know, we, do, we try not to treat people differently. Yeah. But as I look back now, I see how so much of, you know, structural racism and some of the things were just woven in, in ways that I couldn't even identify um, growing up. And so I think when I moved to LA and encountered such a different world, if you will, and also ended up through a lot of circumstances, getting much more involved in immigration work, you know, it felt like this wasn't even part of my, on my radar growing up. I mean, I kind of had a general framework of like, we're Christians, so we should be kind and welcoming, but also there's rules and people should follow the rules. And to me, it was, it was pretty clear cut. Like we're not, we're going to be kind, but also people should do the right thing. And it wasn't until I kind (laughs) of jumped in with both feet that I realized like, Oh, there is so much more going on here that (laughs) those two things kind of fall flat. (laughs) So, yeah, no, I mean, and I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I think um, you say here, on page 19, stairwells and bunkers, you know, of, of the book, you know, he said, unfortunately, few churches are having conversations about immigration. A 2015 study from Lifeway Church revealed only that one in five evangelical Christians at their local church has ever encouraged them to reach out to immigrants in their communities. Yet almost 70 percent of those surveyed said they would appreciate a sermon that taught how biblical principles and examples could be applied to the, uh, to the issue of immigration. So I'm just curious, like what, how do you see this? I mean, how do you see, so you, 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 you know, you've had this experience, you've come in through, um, you know, uh, from the South, you're, you're, you know, you've taught, you've got your master's in sociology. Now, you've, now, now this book, what, what, what brought this, what does, what, what brought this book on and what's, uh, what's kind of the, the arc or arcs throughout it? Yeah. So pretty soon after I moved to LA is when I met Billy, who is now my husband. And All right. it was about on our third date. Yeah. <laughs> on our third date, I think that he told me um, in a very roundabout way because he was trying to tell me without telling me, but I wasn't getting it, <laughs> um, <laughs> that he was an undocumented immigrant. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, again, kind of coming, even having studied sociology and, been, and I was doing the leadership at LA Term at that time, I still didn't have that kind of inner knowledge of like what all of that really means. Um, And so my first thought when he told me was kind of like, well, you know, if this relation gets serious, I hope he gets that worked out. Um, (laughs) Because I literally was coming from a perspective that if people want to get it worked out, they would, you know, and that, yeah. And so that's why even in, in my, (laughs) when I see people on Facebook and other wonderful platforms like that where people discuss social topics mm-hmm. um they say you know they see oh well this loving father pastor you know is being is in deportation proceedings and there's always commenters that say well i just don't understand why if he's this great guy he didn't just get it taken care of right um and and i re- while that kind of is hard for me to read now i also can harken back to my older self and be like I know I used to think that was exactly the situation. Um, and so, you know, there was this sense of like, he just needs to take a half day off of work, go down to the embassy or someplace, <laughs> I'm sure, and kind of get his business handled, you know? And, right. Um, it just, it, I had no idea how much, how much more was going on there and how, how limited that access truly is. Um, yeah. So that's, so for me, as far as writing Love Undocumented, it very much came out of 
if people, I had this feeling like if people only knew, because if I had only known, I would have thought very differently about this topic previously. Um, and so I really wanted to be able to write a story that shared kind of that whole process that we went through because I felt like, I feel like there's a lot of Christians out there who truly want to support immigrants mm-hmm. and who want to be an advocate, but they they don't know exactly what the situation is, and they do get hung up on this this reality that a law has been broken. And so, how do we how do we navigate around that if we don't have the information and kind of the context? Yeah, for all of that. So yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, all right. So let me so let me ask this. So this we're you know it's. 2016 election we got you know a new (laughs) a new president if i can say that you know in office i mean how do you still hold strongly that you know that folks want to have these conversations are there more you know because you know right so the media you know places it at least at least situates these conversations around particularly undocumentation you know particularly around latinx peoples um which you know we all know is just not the case i mean i know in my class alone i have like two africans um you know like western africans and you know uh, one uh, eastern african and another indian you know they're undocumented they came here they overstayed their um their visa permit and you know now they're quote-unquote undocumented and so I'm just curious, what do you think the conversation looks like now? Because it looks hostile, like, um, yeah. you know, around this particular issue. It's like, it's like the minute we get to particularly Latinx folks, because this is where, you know, it usually comes down to it. It seems like it turns into just this fight. <laughs> it's, do people need to be educated more? Do do we need to be having more conversations in church? I mean, what how what's 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 your take on this? I'm I'd, I'm very curious. <laughs> Um, I wish I had a really easy answer for that question, but it, it no, is a good one. Yes, yes. Com- one. <laughs> complex it up. That's exactly what I, that's what exactly what I, yes. <laughs> but I, I think that, I think it's a combination because I do feel like there's so much misinformation circulating at, yeah. in, at the moment that it's, it's ridiculously hard to have a real conversation. I don't think that undocumented immigration serves anybody well. I don't think it serves immigrants well. I don't think it serves the country well. And I think a lot of people are in agreement on that. Like, I don't think you have a huge people advocating for, you know, immigration that's under the radar because it's it's a really vulnerable place for immigrants to live in. Um, and I think what, what a lot of times is misunderstood is is how there are so few legal channels that it's nearly impossible. Business Insider did a great, like, um, there's probably like an official name, like a tree chart of some kind, <laughs> kind yeah. of doing the like, do you meet this requirement? Yes or no. And you kind of see and how so many of them lead to a dead end. There's no way for you to enter the U S legally. Um, and I think that, that that's part of a misunderstood situation. I mean, people are constantly shocked when I talk about um, my husband's parents applied for visas twice mm. to come to our wedding Wow! and they were denied. So they, they did not get to attend our wedding or the births of our children or any of those things. And I think people think that if you just do it the right way, then it's fine. But the reality is there, there is, there is no way for that to work out. (laughs) Like, and so therefore we've, because this system is so outdated and so broken, it creates, um, you know, these places where people have to do whatever it takes, um, 
to be able to be able for their families. Now, you know, my in-laws were in a different situation. And so they just, they had to choose to miss our wedding, which was really heartbreaking for the Man. family, you know? Man. Um, and so I think that a lot of times that's not really understood. I mean, during the campaign for the 2016 election, you know, there was a um, one particular ad that was super, um, you know, people are flooding our borders and these kinds of things. And they show this footage. Yeah. Well, then the fact checker websites come back and say, this is not footage from any U.S. border. This is from a different border in a different part of the world. But, you know, the message has already gotten across that, oh, you know, yeah. there's just people running towards the border. Yes. Where when you actually kind of dig into the <laughs> statistics, it's like successful illegal entries from 2005 to 2015 went from 1.7 million to 170,000. So it's like mm. massive, massive reduction in border crossing. And in my husband's case, like some of the students you mentioned, he had come legally on a visa and overstayed. Um, well, since 2008, mm-hmm. every year, more people overstay visas than cross the border. So it's like until we can really talk about the real issues and not just talk about building a wall because that's not actually solving the problem. And there is a challenge. There's a problem to be solved for everyone, <laughs> but it's not about border walls because that is a, a much reduced, that has already been working and it's moving in the right direction. Yeah. Um, and so that I, you know, I think right now you see legislation trying to limit legal immigration and it's like, that's the kind of stuff that will actually create more challenges down the line how do we actually create policy and things that have a make it so that people can follow a legal procedure and mm-hmm. i've kind of strayed way far from your question of like do people really want to have this conversation no, no. but i think that <laughs> i think that the the piece about having some factual information i mean when i was writing the book you know i had to kind of i was sometimes in the, the deep the deep dark parts of the internet um researching immigration, which was challenging, but, you know, it was fascinating to read these articles. And I was reading one that was talking all about how people were, you know, um, costing the government so much money and taking, but not contributing. And, and I, I realized as I was reading through it, that there wasn't a single source cited. It was just Mm. someone saying, this is truth, you know? And meanwhile, I'm like knee deep in actuarial notes from the IRS (laughs) that are talking (laughs) about how our um, how much our social security system is actually relying on people who are paying taxes but don't have social security numbers to claim the money that they've contributed and okay. it was something like 13 million or billion dollars that that they net each year of people who don't aren't able to claim it um, and so you know I thought like this idea of really trying to hone in on where are you getting your information? So how can we have real, true conversations about the immigration system and making it stronger for everyone? But I also feel like you can know all the facts in the world, and especially, I think, for the church. But if you don't have relationships with immigrants, it's never going to feel like an urgent or kind of um, there's going to be a disconnect there that's going to make you know the sermons yeah. or the facts always fall a little bit flat. And I think that's where we have to um, be more engaged in our communities. And I, you know, coming from the South to L.A., I was like, man, I've never, you know, we'd 
this is just so different than where I'm from. I don't, there's not immigrants where I'm from. Well, that's not true, <laughs> like, <laughs> but, it, but it wasn't, it wasn't top of mind for me. Right. And it wasn't in my day to day experience that I was connecting with people who had immigrated. And so, you know, I think churches in particular have to look at how do they, how do they engage and connect because, because it is kind of a hostile environment and people aren't necessarily seeking out um, those connections who have immigrated because it might not be safe. And yeah. so, you know, I think that that's where kind of that radical hospitality and true welcome mm-hmm. um, really speaks volumes about, about our faith and the God that we serve. So. Yeah. Well, and let's, I mean, let's talk about that then. I mean, you, so this has I been, this is great. I mean, so like, so some of the pushback and, you know, the devil's advocacy, if you will, is, you know, this is they're breaking the law. They they come over here. And if we're Christians, we have to abide by the law. We have to abide by the law of the land. Um, on one end, you have people who say, OK, well, you have we have to close this border because uh, you have people from um, ISIS and Al Qaeda coming over and they want to destroy us and they want to destroy our democracy. Right. This is some of the rhetoric that comes out, you know. And then on the other side of it, then you have people who talk about, you know, these folks who have stayed here. They've, you know, they've they've been illegal. Now, one of the quotes you put um, uh, on page 44, you said, instead, most current, uh, this is the middle paragraph, most current undocumented immigrants in the United States have, like Billy, overstayed their temporary visas. A 2015 study by the Center for Migration Studies found that in each year between 2008 and 2012, the number of people who have overstayed their visa exceeded the number of those who had illegally crossed the U.S.-Mexico border. You got a little footnote there. I like that. I love footnotes. Um, this is an <laughs> act of civil violation. Oh, this is a civil violation, excuse me, of federal immigration law, but it's not a criminal offense. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, because for for certain folks who are like extreme rule keepers and are just like, look, they're breaking the law on this. I mean, how do you how do you navigate some of those conversations and what does it look like in particular and this is where really, I mean, I'd, I'd love to yeah, also hear your your opinion on. It's like, you know, what what does this lead towards? You know, what what do solutions look like when those when some people have just dug in with like this is just just against the law? You know, we don't want lawbreakers mm-hmm. in our society. If you know, if does that make sense? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, so using my husband Billy as an example, you know, he had a a ten year visa to the U.S., um, but you could only stay in six month chunks at a time. Okay. Um, and so, so when I met him, he had a valid passport and a valid visa, but he had not exited within the time frame. And so, you know, one of the things, and I talk about this in the book is he's like, I should have gone to Mexico for the day. Cause if I had left and come back, none of this would have been an issue. Mm, right. Mm, and okay. so, which, you know, so, after we had our daughter, we moved to um, Argentina for a few months to um, lead some volunteer teams there. And um, my daughter and I, who are both U.S. citizens, had a time limit. I think it was three months. And so okay. um, after, after that, we hit that three-month part, we went to Uruguay for the day, and then we re-entered Argentina, right? And so this is something that people are doing all over the world. And I think, um, you know, there's lots of students or people that travel that they kind of know like, oh, yeah, you kind of can come and go and 
sort of keep your paperwork in check. But I think when that's happening here, it's been framed in this sort of criminalized way. And yes, he had overstayed, which he was like, you know, wishing, regretting that he hadn't taken that day trip to Mexico in a timely <laughs> manner. Yeah, yeah. But the reality that there's no way to fix that um, is kind of an, a sort of one of those examples of like, this really shouldn't be, in my opinion, something that can potentially bar you from the country for 10 years and those kinds of things when it's, when it really is like it says it's a, it's a violation of kind of their procedure, but it's not a crime. Um, it's not processed in a criminal courts or those kinds of things. Um, on the other side of it, I will say you hear a lot of conversation about um, unaccompanied minors that arrive at the border or, um, you know, then they kind of are being apprehended at the border. Right. And that's been a, there's been a huge influx in that. But what is, what I think is sometimes misunderstood is that it's being framed as they're crossing into the, into the country illegally, but what they're actually doing is arriving at the border and surrendering to border patrol and hmm. saying, I'm here to seek asylum. Hmm. And that is actually because we don't have a refugee center in Central America. Uh-huh. We were building one a few years ago and that's been stopped. Okay. Um, we don't, we don't have a place in Central America for people to apply as refugees, even though there's extreme violence and extreme poverty in that, in some of those parts of the world. And so that actually is, that is the procedure for them <laughs> is to show up at the border and say, I'm here to seek asylum. And so when we kind of reframe all of that, you know, people overstaying their visas or we frame people who are arriving to seek asylum, all of that is criminal activity. It really clouds what's what's truly happening um, and what kind of some of these procedures are mm-hmm. and maybe ways that they could be strengthened, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think those are just one. That's the great example, by the way, um, of just how I mean, so, you know, I so I teach media studies and just, you know, understanding, you know, helping students become more media literate Um, in this age of, quote unquote, fake news. And, you know, you talked about the um, the image that was, you know, shown to to people. I mean, I mean, what? How do we even have a conversation? How do we even have, you know, talks with somebody who's already just, in, you know, embedded into, you know, again, this is this is an illegal thing. I mean, I love. So, I'm, again, I'm, I'm quoting from this is on page 66, um, middle paragraph or I guess second paragraph. It says, you know, as Christ followers, you told the story, man, you were you were honest, man. You told the story about how you were a kid and you you, know, you saw a friend's answer <laughs> and you and then you told you told on yourself in, in that test. <laughs> I did. <laughs> that is yep. that's awesome i you know, when i when i read that i was like i actually had an internal dialogue i ain't gonna front i was just like man i don't, I don't know if i would have said anything man i want to answer man but that's awesome that's awesome my, my wife this is very much the same way um but you say as christ follows we seek to honor the laws of the land in which we live while recognizing that our primary allegiance is to god when asylum seekers mm-hmm. like the mother and child we met in chapter three get the book chapter three is great escape immediate danger and flee to the united states have they violated god's law how do you have conversations like this with folks you know particularly fundamentals <laughs> i mean you, yeah. you know what i'm saying does that make sense yeah i mean i think it does make sense and and i'm not sure i'm great at it <laughs> um, <laughs> i think that 
you know, I'm, I feel like for me, there is always that question of, you know, does, would my allegiance to the state's law in this case be putting that before God's law? So it's with, you know, there was a case recently of um, some activists who provide water for migrants crossing the desert being arrested, that they are mm. giving water to people mm. in the desert. And, you know, so I think, I think there's really good questions for the church to wrestle with in that of, you know, is offering a thirsty person in the desert water, is that a crime? <laughs> like, and if it is a crime, does that mean we won't do it? Um, mm. And so, because there was a lot when um, Alabama passed some of the harshest state laws against immigration a few years back, there was a lot of gray area that if you were caught transporting, you know, someone who was in the country illegally that you were, you know, like uh, you were part of this sort of process, right? Well, so does that mean if you don't check an immigrant's status before you offer them a ride to church, you're, you're transporting illegal immigrants? Like, and so what does that mean for us as the body of Christ? Are we checking people's papers before we show love and kindness? <laughs> like, or are we engaging and, you know, leaving some of that, like taking God at God's word, that this is how we treat our neighbor, this is how we love the people around us, and it's not my job to decide if they deserve it or if mm. they're, you know, here, in, you know, with proper papers, whether or not I'm going to serve them or be a part of this. I, you know, I'm not sure that that's, well, I'm pretty sure that's not my job, <laughs> but yeah. I think what I've been called to is to love those around me, whatever that looks like. And mm -hmm. so, and I think when you talk about, you know, I'm not sure, I, and some of this is my personality, like arguments have never really changed my mind about things. And so when I, you know, how do you talk to a, someone who's really entrenched in this idea of, well, they're here illegally, um, you know, again, I come back to, relationship because I'm like part of me feels like until you hear a story or you connect with a real person you know that ideological um framework that's so you know intense that it can't be broken I think has to be connected to flesh and blood and that that's how you begin to understand some of the nuances in this in the system because I think that if you want to just say well someone's illegal so they get what they deserve you know, yeah. I mean, I already have <laughs> like there's just this thing of you've kind of dehumanized with kind of calling people illegal um, and you've sort of just yeah. disconnected yourself from that. And, you know, I kind of some of the things like in writing the book and thinking about some of the other perspectives on this, I'm like, if it wasn't for my faith, I could see. I mean, I, I feel like I wouldn't have a strong argument. Right. But because our allegiance is to God, then some of these things fall away because it's not our responsibility to just uphold what the state says um, in ways that are damaging to real people. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. No, absolutely. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I mean, I think you said it. I mean, I think that's one of, I think the greatest challenges, right? I mean, it's just like, Oh, you know, I've said this in class over and over and over issues are just issues, you know, until, you know, they become mm -hmm. somehow personalized and, 
you know, if we just watch, yeah. you know, news from either side of the bench, I mean, if left or right, you know, yeah. MSNBC or Fox News, if we just watch what our, you know, mind is 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 gravitating towards, I just it, there there are no there is no connection with that. It's just it's just a bunch of words yeah. coming through. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, people, it's easy to overlook until you engage uh, with that. Um I mean, I, go ahead. Can I yes. add one thing? Yeah, let's add it. Add <laughs> because away. I will say <laughs> that I do think that is where growing up in this kind of conservative evangelical world that uh-huh. shaped me yeah. actually helped in that way. Because I was I was brought up to believe that, you know, the government is not necessarily having God's interests top of mind at all times, right? And yeah. so, you know, that things you know, if someone's teaching evolution in school, that we need to ask more questions. Or, you know, I grew up um, being involved in protests against abortion, even though it was legalized. And so I think for me, being able to take away some of those, like, I am not a a pawn of the state. <laughs> like, I, I answer to God first. And so what does that mean in this situation? Um, I think was actually really empowering to me in a lot of ways of um, it wasn't turning my back on on a government that represented my faith it was staying true to my faith regardless of what the government is deciding if that makes sense yeah no this is that's and that's good i mean that's real good i mean i think that that's um yeah i mean it, i mean and i mean i guess that's that i mean that'd be kind of the next you know engagement is like you know what I mean, how do you, how, where, where are you at now with like, you know, you got conservatism on one end. It's like, you know, some folks would see this as like, oh, this is a liberal agenda and they're just trying to just take our borders and, and allow anybody to come in. Right. You know, this, this rhetoric that comes in, it's like, you know, Trump makes one statement. Um, I forget what he said. I haven't even read the whole thing. I mean, it's always right. Every day is a new, it's a new thing. Right. Um, but you know, and then the NRA goes off on him because like, oh, he was, you know, like you got these, these hard right wingers, you know, saying, oh, he was a Democrat and a liberal the whole time. You know, I'm like, dang, I mean, like <laughs> what, the, what the heck? So I'm, you know, where are you at now? I mean, where, what do you, what do you, what are, what are some of the tensions and stuff like that? I mean, do you consider yourself more leaning left or do you be like, nah, 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 I'm still, this type of conservative, I mean, I'd, I'd be curious to see, you know, you know where where your where your journey has brought you on on those things. I, you know, it's yeah, it's funny that to me that you would even ask that because I definitely most of the conservatives in my life would be like, oh no, she's not conservative at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just funny. I feel like I haven't been asked that in a long time, um, but I think. One of the things I've, and some of this is just the the rhetoric has gotten so intense in the last year and a half um, that I actually think it's it's pushed me to ask a lot of deeper questions. And because I have two um, small kids, I have a four year old and a seven year old. Yeah. I, you know, we read a lot of Bible stories that are very, you know, toddler appropriate. <laughs> like, yeah. And one of the things I've always that I have been noticing the theme in these Bible stories. Um, when you look at Daniel in the lion's den or you look at Queen Esther is it's like, there's a King who ends up doing really damaging stuff, but there's always these advisors in the background, right. Um, that (laughs) are are the ones that actually convince the King to do this really terrible thing. Um, and usually the King is a little bit like clueless. Um, and so I've been reflecting a lot on that (laughs) because I think, um, you know, our sort of human nature is to like, 
is to name an enemy. I think on, that's one thing all mm. sides agree on. It's mm. like naming an Im- enemy and then going after that person. Yeah. But I'm really struck that like in these stories that there's a, there's always this group of people behind kind of the face of, of the enemy. And I think for me, it's made me think a lot about what does it mean to constantly keep speaking truth in a world of fake news, like speaking truth to power, yeah. not, um, not being, beat down by that in a way, because I feel like, you know, I think it's real easy sometimes to think, well, if this, if we can just get this person out of office then everything will be fine. But I think what I've right. really recognized over the last year and a half is there's a lot more people, um, working in the background than I maybe realized. Yeah. Um, and so what does that mean to kind of not get distracted by one person, but to really continue to push for this kind of alternative, um, worldview that I believe Christianity offers. And I think it's gotten real mixed in with patriotism and things in ways that have really diluted it. But I don't think that's really at the heart of the gospel. Um, and so, mm. I don't know, I try to keep coming back to that. Yeah. Um, so. Well, I know. I mean, it's 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 something I know, you know, well, I mean, it's like for me, it's like, you know, I, you know, I don't, you know, identify as evangelical. I mean, I think more my, you know, own faith process is somewhere more in, you know, a, a mystic uh, neo post-Christian environment and whatnot. But, you know, there's still right. I mean, there's still always elements, right, of the, you know, the phantoms of 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 the past. Right. It's like, well, do you believe this? And what about that? And, you know, and how do you, you know, and, and then, you know, and then it's, you know, as with, with most Christians, at least Christianity here in the United States and the way it's set up in our society, like you said, OK, abortion is a big one, uh, you know, same sex marriage. Um, and now, of course, you know, this whole, you know, the, the border wall and all that and whatnot. I mean, I think those are hot issues that come up in different ways. Um, and, you know, and people are, you know, vehemently, you know, it's just it's interesting, you know, because those those people take some some interesting stands on those and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Do you like so the church that you are part of now, or at least the church community, let me phrase it that way. Um, how is you know, how are these conversations going going there in your in your like local, you know, community? You know, for the last four or so years, we've been attending an immigrant church. Um, but it's been interesting because there's definitely that's um, definitely a lot of diversity of opinion and a lot of very conservative um, perspectives as well. Um, hmm. okay. And I think um, one of the things that we have talked about a lot is what does it mean to go to church with people we don't always agree with um, on other things and but also that we are all trying to it is it's been again kind of humanizing to me to be around people that I know are seeking to follow God um even if sometimes the ways we do that look differently um or the conclusions that we come to seem different um and how do we kind of stay engaged in those ways um i also will say several years ago um this is also where it's interesting being married to someone who is not born and raised in the USA because you have that outside perspective that mm-hmm. is a lot often a lot sharper <clears throat> at recognizing what is cultural and what is patriotism versus what is faith mm. um, or what is Christianity and so that has continued oh, you know we've been married over 10 years now and that continues to be just a real gift <laughs> i think of yeah. cross cultural marriage in those ways of recognizing like 
where do you read that in the Bible? <laughs> or have you just grown up <laughs> hearing that in, in church or among Christians? Um, and a few years ago, um, Billy in particular got very, did a ton of research on um, the Jewish context of Jesus and those kinds of things. And it was super enlightening for us both to recognize, I think because we are very aware in our own marriage where culture influences us yeah. in communication styles and in parenting choices and all those different ways. Parenting, I think, brings it up a lot because you, you're both trying to replicate your own childhood. And our childhoods looked very differently. He grew up in Guatemala and I grew up in East Tennessee. Hmm. And um, and so bringing kind of the the research that he was doing and we had so many conversations about you know, the cultural context of what was going on when Jesus said this, what was doing that and recognizing, you know, we've done several different workshops on cross-cultural marriage and things. And there's always, there's always a a sweet young couple that's like, we don't acknowledge culture in our relationship. Like we just both love God and we love each other. (laughs) Yeah. God bless them. They usually usually (laughs) haven't been married very long. (laughs) It's uh, so we're like, okay, just hit us back in a couple of years. And, um, and so, I think that's what the church has done a lot with G- like there's no cultural context mm-hmm. that we're that we're reading the Bible through and honestly um the Bible has been more alive to me in the last 5 years hmm. even though some of the things that I've been reading and learning maybe are different than what has always been proclaimed to me or again I don't know that anything's ever been said out loud it's sort of just stuff I absorbed but okay. it was that that culture that you're swimming in all the time. It, you know, it's the lens that I was reading the Bible through. So now, kind of wearing different glasses, it's been like, oh, this actually makes a lot more sense. Or, you know, in Jewish tradition, there's question asking is encouraged, which is not always encouraged in evangelicalism. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, well, when I can ask questions about this story that I've wondered my whole life how this made any sense, but we just weren't talking about it then it actually can kind of grow some of that that fruit and understanding that just wasn't able to be there for. And there's a book called, I think it's called Reading the Scripture Through Western Eyes, hmm. um, okay. something similar, that was really powerful to me as well. Um, and so, yeah, I think when I think about where my faith has come in the last, you know, two decades or whatnot, it's, a lot of it has again, been influenced by this relationship of being in a cross-cultural situation where we recognize how culture influences the ways that we see and believe about God. Yeah. And it can be very, very rich once you kind of dig into it. No, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and well, I mean, and, and I don't know, I mean, if you want to speak a little bit, just, you know, uh, you know, what, what has that relationship been like, you know, man, 10 years, I didn't even, I think I saw you guys a few years back. Um, uh, this might even been before you guys even had kids. I saw you guys at CCDA and, uh, had a chance to, to meet your husband. I think I'm actually, I saw you a couple of times at, at, at CCDA. Mm-hmm. I forget which city it was. But uh, man, ten years. I mean, so you guys, you got you've logged some time in, and so what? And what has that been like? Um, ha, ha, you know, acknowledging culture, acknowledging race, acknowledging just the differences, um, you know, within the relationship, but yet still maintaining. Okay, look, we love each other. We're in this. You know, we're both. You know, we both love God, and so you know, what's what's that been like? What's that? What's that process been like? And what what is it like now? Especially with some of the mess that we're we're seeing, you know, strewn to us every every day, you know, uh, in our media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been, 
I mean, there's some areas that it's like, I still can't believe it's 10 years in. Like, um, it typically Guatemalan communication is more of an indirect style, which is like, kind of like even when I said when he tried to tell me he was undocumented, it's like, it's very indirect. And so sometimes I feel like having to decode a message <laughs> that's being sent to me. Yeah. And so like, even now still, when I'm like, I just understood what you're trying to tell me. And I feel like super excited. <laughs> like, And he just kind of rolls his eyes. Like, I know I've been telling you for 10 minutes. <laughs> like, and so I think there's all still this kind of like, you know, we're just sort of honing those skills of living together and, and raising a family together. Um, I think we've both grown in a lot of ways. And I mean, in some ways, I think for him, because we live in the States and that our kids are, we speak English at home and those kinds of things, you know, there's been um, just challenges of kind of figuring out how we navigate all of that and how we um, hmm. yeah. make sure that we, cause it's very important to us that we raise our kids biculturally, but it's a lot harder than it sounds. Um, yeah, it is. And so yeah. we're always kind of trying to figure out like, okay, how do we, how do we make space for this? How do we put some intentionality behind this? Um, but I think, you know, for them, I, I feel really grateful for it, but it definitely, yeah, it's something that feels hard to believe it's been 10 years. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, but I, I think, you know, when you talk about kind of how has that played out currently, it's been very interesting because to me, because he and I, not only are we different culturally, like we're also just different people with different strengths and gifts and personalities. Mm -hmm. And so as the climate got more tense and I was working on this book, um, you know, that for me was kind of like, this is how I speak out. Like, I'm going to write this book. I'm doing this research. I'm doing podcast interviews. Like, that's kind of yeah. like how I can engage. Like, because that fits with my, like, gifts and personality and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Billy's response was very different. Oh. And as I was talking through the book and kind of telling him about the things I was learning and writing, um, he felt deeply moved. You know, he was like, this is ridiculous <laughs> because he's also paying attention to Guatemalan um, politics and news and stuff at the same time. And he was just like, you know, governments in both countries are kind of washing their hands, but real people are caught in the middle. Um, and so he has spent the last year actually working to start a business in Guatemala to employ deportees and to employ people there so that people can have a choice of whether or not they want to immigrate and feel like they have options. Hmm. Um, because that for him felt like this is how I make an impact on this issue is because returning as a deportee is really, really tough. Um, yeah. Because a, a lot of people assume you did something wrong. That's why you got deported. You know, that there's you something that you're not telling them <laughs> about what happened in the U S and some of those different things. People are, might be very culturally, American, depending on how long they've been there. And so he really felt compelled to how can I use my skills as an entrepreneur to create something that can actually make an impact in people's lives. And that was kind of his response to sort of the the work I was doing on the book. So it's been kind of interesting to see how those things fit together. Yeah. Um, but we're coming at them from very different cultural places. 
as well. So, yeah, no, I mean, no, man, that's that. You know, that's that's the truth. I mean, that's. You know, and like you said, I mean, the idea, I mean, I know before before I had kids, I was like, oh, man, I want to raise my daughter to be speaking Spanish and that's going to be her language. I mean, you know, but it's just it's, it's difficult. Right. I mean, both my wife and I speak sp- yeah. Spanish, but at the same time. I learned Spanish because my grandmother did not speak English whatsoever. So it's like I communicate with her and she raised me. Um, you know, it's like I had to learn. And so. That was not the case raising my daughter, both my wife and I, our primary language was English. And so, I mean, just just that alone. I mean, and granted, you know, we're always having conversations. I mean, it's, it's a daily thing, right, about race and gender and, you know, mm-hmm. who am I? What am I? And am I this? And what about that? And how come this? And how come that? And so, yeah. I, but like you said, it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, so in the last chapter, you know, you talk about citizenship without borders. I love the picture you have on page 181. Um, you know, Billy and you are uh, and your children participating in the public witness Atlanta airport in 2017. Um, I love the pictures. You guys are, are adorable um, in there. And mm-hmm. but I'm but I'm thinking like what moving forward, like what what do you see? What do you how do you. How do you see this this moving forward? Because it seems gridlocked. I mean, now you got, you know, the Supreme Court um, has just stopped. They're like, ah, we're even going to deal with it. And so we will touch this. Um, it, it seems gridlocked. I mean, I feel like the Democrats gave up a, a large, just whatever holding power they had, you know, with this whole budget thing or tax thing or whatever. And now, you know, now we're we're back to square one. Right. And so. What do you see in that regard? That's that's politics. You know, neither of us are, are politicians and we're not writing law. But, you know, what do you see moving forward uh, as and, and do we I don't want to just hop real quick to one of the things is, you know, being a workshop trainer and professor. I, you know, I think oftentimes we, we hop too quick to the solutions without ever really examining the problem, the issue, lamenting what is what is what is going on. So I don't you know, feel free to push back and be like, dude, you know, this is what we got. You know, we ain't even there yet. <laughs> but what are some mm-hmm. thoughts as you think moving forward? And by no means, this is a podcast that, you know. We're not, you know, trying to look for A plus C equals B or, you know, it's like, no, A and one, maybe some Z's in there. And, you know, and, that, and that's not even the answer. We're just going to mix it up. So feel free to, to, to you know, to, to complicate, you know, things even further. But I'd be curious what you see as, as, as we as we march forward in this thing, because obviously the immigration, quote unquote, debate is not going away. I hope that makes sense. That long little soliloquy there that I just, um, you know, laid out. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, I it it feels bleak at the moment to be perfectly honest. So yeah. I think it, I struggle to think about Come where on. where do we go from here because mm-hmm. you know, I think on when we're recording this Monday, it will is when the Dream Act kind of expires for the final time and and I'm I'm not even totally clear on all the details of what that means for individual people. Um and so, you know, but I know that it, it will have an impact and that that kind of timeline will have run out. Yeah. And um, it's incredibly frustrating. It's incredibly frustrating to watch, you know, the dreamers are a really small percentage of of immigrants that are struggling with with documentation and, and procedure and all those things. But they have garnered a huge amount of public support on both sides of the aisle. And yet people haven't been able to get it done because they want to keep leveraging it to try to get other stuff done. Um, and that's just infuriating to me. And that's probably why I wouldn't be a good politician because I just don't understand how you can 
play with people's lives like that to try to achieve your agendas. And, yeah. and then watching how it's, it's, you know, kind of hanging in the balance even as we speak and may, and may not be resolved. Um, it, it has been making me think, I'm like, okay, so where do we go from here? If the laws are becoming more oppressive, if we do limit legal immigration, um, you know, we're looking at one of the things that's been talked about a lot <clears throat> recently um, is sort of this, sort of use this derogatory phrase of chain migration. Yeah. But what it is essentially is like um, being able to have my mother-in-law come here <laughs> if she wants to, um, which has always been a challenge, right? You know, I mentioned earlier that both my mother and father-in-law were denied visas for yeah. coming yeah. to our wedding. Um, but ironically, we could have, they could have moved here. Like, be, so that's where the system has these weird things, right? <laughs> like right. if they wanted to live here, we could have applied for them to live here because of, um, because Billy became a citizen and because it's his parents. But they didn't want to. They just wanted to visit. And so, but that became impossible. Um, a couple of years ago, they applied again. And my mother-in-law did receive a visa, but my father-in-law did not. Um, and so she's been able to come visit a couple of times. But it all feels so capricious. I think yes. that's the right word. Yeah. <laughs> just random. And um, and not very logical. And so, you know, as I think about how do we move forward to me, it kind of comes to these micro, I'm like, I, mm-hmm. I feel like there's this whole scale from micro to macro. Yes, <laughs> so, yes, come on, You know, talk it's it. like, okay, whatever happens with the laws, that doesn't change how I love my neighbor. Like, right. immigration can be super complicated, but loving my neighbor is simple. And so that doesn't really change regardless of the law. It's kind of what we talked about earlier. I'm still going to offer you a ride to church if you need one. I'm still going to give you a glass of water if you're thirsty, like that doesn't change for me regardless of what the laws say. Yeah. Um, but it, but then as we kind of move across that spectrum towards more macro, like what does it mean to kind of continue to rally and continue to send letters and to, you know, hold lawmakers accountable towards making decisions that, that benefit real people. Um, and I mean, I'll be interested to see because, and I think I include this in the book, um, after the um, travel ban of mm-hmm. that that January, I guess a year ago, um, a lot of what we call lawful permanent residents. So they're here permanently, lawfully, but they're not citizens, so they can't vote. Yeah, I mean, in droves became citizens because people have been scared <laughs> into citizenship. Yeah, which is unfortunate as a philosophy. But it will be interesting to see how that changes voting going forward when you've got lots and lots and lots of newly registered voters um, with the potential to contribute in that way. So um, but then even going kind of more more macro than that, like what does it mean for Christians to get involved in politics or Christians to kind of like I'll come out with Billy starting a business like what does it mean to offer a, you know, offer a college scholarship to a student that doesn't qualify for any aid because they don't have the right paperwork. Right. Um, you know, and there are, there are universities and colleges that have stepped up and done that, have said, we would love to have you at our school. Don't worry about the finances. And, and so I'm like some of those ways that we continue to live into kind of a lifestyle of justice, I think will continue to be part of the narrative, but the, the, 
the quote unquote success stories um, are feeling fewer and far between at the moment. But I feel like if you look at immigration throughout our country's history, it ebbs and flows. And so my hope is that we will press forward towards something that that is more welcoming as we move forward. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. 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 This has been great, Sarah. Thank you again um, for for coming on. This is this is this has been great. It's been great conversation. Thank you so much. Great talking to you. Absolutely. So the book is Love Undocumented, Risking Trust in a Fearful World. Um, It is out there. It is um, it is in Amazon is is in uh, bookstores as well, I'm assuming. Mm hmm. All right. Yep. With, with uh, you know, with Harold Press, I imagine that's a that's a good one. Um, where can folks find you, Sarah, if somebody wants to connect with you and, and say, hey, let's have you out and, 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 and pay you uh, six figures to speak for an hour at the, at the U.N. and <laughs> all that good stuff. Uh, where, where can we connect yes. with you at? Yes. Yeah, so I have a website that's Sarah Casada, which is S-A-R-A-H-Q-U-E-Z-A-D-A dot com. And then I'm also on all of the social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, also Sarah Casada. I would love to talk to anybody. Yes, yes. Well, and I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, I mean, with you at, 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 in part of this conversation and, you know, the national conversation, I mean, I think the, I think the book is very well done. Um, I love the narrative throughout, which is one of the things that caught me, you know, uh, when you sent me an early copy and everything. And so um, I love the way it's just laid out. It's not I mean, it's it's somebody who reads, you know, I'm, I love theory and research and academic text. I mean, this is a lot different mm-hmm. than that, but at the same time still has that hard data. So you this is very well, very well laid out book. Very good. Very good job. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Well, cool. Well, folks, and if you're listening again, as always, I put these in the show notes, whitehodgepodcast.com. This is on Twitter. I mean, Twitter. We're going to be on Twitter, but this is also on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, uh, SoundCloud, wherever you find your podcast at. But if you're listening to this and streaming it, you can come back to whitehodgepodcast.com and get all the notes, the show notes here um, as well. So once again, Sarah, thank you so much. And we hope to have you on again. Thank you. Justice Department when Attorney General Jeff Sessions is expected to announce the president's plan to end DACA or deferred action for childhood arrivals with a six-month delay. It's a controversial move that's already creating opposition from the left and many on the far right. As Washington gets back to work today, President Trump is setting off a bruising immigration battle, deciding the fate of more than 780,000 young immigrants brought here illegally by their parents. White House sources tell NBC News the president will likely end DACA today with a six-month delay for Congress to come up with a fix. The program protects dreamers from being deported while they work or attend school. The expected decision already triggering cross-country protests over the holiday weekend. And a blue state backlash with attorneys general in New York and Washington vowing to sue if the president cancels DACA. Candidate Trump pledged to repeal the Obama-era program. You'll rescind the Dream Act executive order have to. in DACA. We have to make a whole new set of standards. And when people come in, they have so to come in. You're going to split up families. Chuck. You're going to deport children. Chuck, no, no. We're going to keep the families together. We have to keep the families together. But you're going to keep them together. But they have to go. 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 But they have to go.